The initial error was having three armored forces separated by hundreds of miles on the assumption that they were not going to find any enemies. In other words, they came in ready to pick up Ukraine. And those, they didn't have enough fuel, they didn't have, the troops were entrained. And that was the first mistake. They thought it was 1944. And it's Heinz Guderian, the German general who was attacking. And they've never recovered from that mistake. It had to, but what it really is, is guerrilla warfare without a jungle or a forest or something. So this is sort of how the Viet Cong operated. This is how certainly how the Taliban operated. But in their case, they had terrain that wasn't flat, that wasn't open. What's extraordinary about the Ukrainians is they're using guerrilla tactics on terrain, they should be wiped out. But they have one huge advantage of the guerrilla. There is no central command that if you destroy it, they lose the war. There's no way to break up their communications because they're not communicating. One thing we also have to remember that's unique here, the weapons that the Americans are providing them to fight with are built for this kind of autonomous battle. The Javelin anti-tank missile, which is extremely effective, is built to be carried by one, two man troop. Now we've had another surge of weapons in. So the advantage of the Ukrainians is both the fact that they are dispersed and that they're receiving weapons of extraordinary quality. World War II was a war of cities. Uh, the Russians advanced on Berlin. Uh, the Kiev and other places were seized by the Germans. In their mindset, the prize is the city. That's the source of supplies. That's the support of direction. And the Russian doctrine that go after the city is helping the Ukrainians, tragically killing civilians. But they're capturing it and it gives them no advantage in the field because that's not where supplies and communications flow from. Well, if you're going to have an armored war, your tanks have to be survivable and they're not anymore. If you're going to have an air war, your planes mustn't be shot down. The anti-air systems that have been transferred to them will shoot them down. It's very good. Yeah, I, I didn't think they would last. I misread the Russian army. I thought the Russian army was more significant, more capable than it was. It took me several days to realize that it's not. And what I have to give credit to the U.S. is the rapid turnaround and the rapid sending of weapons. But we also have to remember that the Germans were sending weapons and the British were sending weapons before we were. It's a big country, a big population in Russia, and there's maybe time. The, the problem is this. The Russians never had first-class troops. They had brave troops, but not really severely trained. It was the officers that moved them around and stuff. Well, now they don't have the very best officers either. As the beginning of the war showed, the generals didn't understand what they were doing. So they've got a problem in the officer corps that they can't quickly fix. And simply feeding more untrained us infantrymen into the situation isn't going to help. The Ukrainians are highly motivated. Uh, the Russians want to go home. Well, they're going to have to, and I'm not sure what the Russians are 
capable of in terms of flexibility. They've shown very little flexibility in this. If they get knocked out of one theater, they go after another city for various reasons that I can understand. But the, they are they are in Poland. They are flowing. The training is going on. And they're going to make a huge difference on the battlefield. But what I don't know is, do the Russians have another 500,000 troops tucked away somewhere, able to come in a second wave? Was their strategy to hit them with the first wave, destabilize the Ukrainians to what extent they could, and then come in with a second wave? There's no evidence that there is this second wave. But without that second wave, I don't know how the Russians win. Only if they have these reserves or a massive uh, call-up, a draft, which they haven't done, and get entrained. You can't fight a war of attrition, only taking attrition. You have to have replacements. Well, particularly the Moskva, which was one of their pearls going down, hit them. But no, they didn't seem to understand that the U.S. was going to feed intelligence. And kind of for psychological warfare reasons, they were revealed that they were feeding intelligence Because now every Russian soldier is wondering if the CIA is mapping them. So there are so many reasons why the Russians should give up. But there were so many reasons before Stalingrad that they should give up. Yes. The Russians fight. Peter Zion here, coming to you from an exciting hotel room in my home state of Iowa. This does not happen often. Anywho, I thought since I'm here in Iowa, it would be a good time to talk about assassination as a strategic strategy. On May 1st, a really interesting thing happened in the Ukraine war. The Ukrainians got a chunk of intelligence about where the commanding general, one uh, Garamasov, was in, near the city of Izium and actually managed to sneak some explosives into the party via, you know, artillery, and missed him, but got a couple dozen of his senior aides as well as another general. So, so far, the Ukrainians have been really good at popping off uh, Russian generals, and this was the most successful attack yet. Now, what's interesting about this is there is no way that uh, the Russians are going to let Garamasov's uh, information just be out there on the web or anything, and he certainly wasn't going to use an unencrypted phone like a lot of other Russian commanders have done. So the only way that I can see that the Ukrainians were able to know where he was and what he was doing with enough detail that they could try to hit him was because the Americans were providing the info. And we've had an endless cavalcade of American officials from the State Department, from the Defense Department, from the NSA, even from the CIA, uh, admit that they are sharing targeting information with the Ukrainians on a real-time-to-target basis. And the understanding is some sort of similar cooperation is what allowed the Ukrainians to know how and when to target the Muscova. Uh, that was the flagship of Russia's Black Sea Fleet last month, which has been the biggest ship to be drowned in wartime since World War II. Now, we're going to be seeing a lot more of this moving forward. The United States has the world's best satellite system, so it can easily identify command posts and troop concentration. And the United States clearly has the world's best signals intelligence system. So we know, for example, that the Americans have been reading Putin's email and tapping his phone since the beginning of the war with enough reliability that they've been the Americans have been able to share Russia's plans with the world before Russia can even act on them. 
Now, that is important enough as it is. The idea that the United States is sharing targeted inf information with the Ukrainians, big deal. But the Ukrainians to this point have been limited to the weapons that they have themselves, plus stingers and javelins and things like that. What has changed and what's about to change in the month of May is that heavy equipment is starting to reach Ukrainian lines, specifically howitzers, long-range artillery pieces. Now, the Americans are being very hush-hush on the type of ammo, and I can understand why, but the standard howitzer ammo has a range of 13 to 14 miles at a 50% accuracy hit rate of about 150 feet. So you use that for area saturation, you use that to attack large troop concentrations, and the whole idea is you have a whole bunch of these firing at more or less the same time to get a lot of explosions in a relatively tight circle. But there's another type of ammo called Excalibur that has a range of 24 miles, so nearly twice as far. And that 50% hit circle is only 16 feet. Now, this is obviously more useful for targeting very specific targets or people. And if you marry the Excalibur weapon system and the howitzer that fires it to American intel about where the commanders happen to be, the Ukrainians are about to have the capacity to execute a complete decapitation strategy for the entire Russian assault. If Ukraine is not gonna lose this war, this is how it would happen. Working with the Americans, they simply destroyed the Russians' ability to have any command and control. Now, as important as that is, and it is, and it's critical for the war how this unfolds now over the course of the next several weeks, it's also applicable in a different way. The United States is done being involved in regular wars. Uh, Americans got tired of the forever war, we're out of the Middle East now, and we think that's broadly a good thing, and it would really take some interesting and bold changes in what's going on in the world for the Americans to want to deploy 100,000 ground troops to another theater. This is a template. What's going on with the Excalibur and the Howitzers and the Ukrainians, this is a template for how the United States is going to fight wars long into the future, for at least the next 15 years, probably a little bit longer, where we choose, we actively choose sides, and then we ship an appropriate weapon system and back it up with the appropriate intelligence support so that it can be an order of magnitude more effective on the battlefield or even on the political side of things as we're going to see with the Ukrainian war this month. And I can see the United States doing this for or against any number of countries out there. Now, we're entering a deglobalized world where the United States footprint is smaller, where American interests and the rest of the world are lower, and where America's tolerance for the, for the violence level in other parts of the world is very, very high. But can you imagine what would happen in places like, let's just pick one, China and Taiwan, where the Americans are providing time on target information to the Taiwanese who already have longer range weapon systems. You could talk about the Chinese losing the capacity to operate their ports with less than 72 hours of effort from Taiwan in that sort of environment. And you can apply this sort of idea to any conflict out there. All the United States does needs is a sufficiently professional, motivated military cadre in the ally who can then take the fight to whoever the foe happens to be. And now it can do it with a range of more than 20 miles. Uh, we've had a big change in the way the Ukraine war and the sanctions regimes from the Europeans are dealing with it uh, evolved today, which is May 4. Uh, the short version 
is that the Europeans have decided that they have installed enough extra replacement infrastructure and have cut enough deals with enough countries around the world that they can now purge Russian oil from their system. You're talking four to five million barrels a day of Russian crude that now has to find a new home. And more importantly, part of this new sanctions regime targets shipping insurance. So quick war story. Back in the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, there was a point in about 1983 where the Iranians and the Iraqis started throwing missiles at each other's shipping in order to attempt an economic blockade. At some point, about 50 ships were hit, and that almost collapsed the global insurance industry. Because in a world under the order where the Americans protect shipping, no one had a loss provision for those ships. So the only reason we didn't have a complete meltdown in first the insurance space and then in the financial space was that the Reagan administration started reflagging tankers and started shooting back at whoever was shooting at them, most notably the Iranians. Now that means today that if you are in a war zone, your shipping insurance is null and void immediately. So a lot of Black Sea shipments, especially to Russian ports like Novorossiysk, cannot get ships into the port because no one can be insured. And that's largely shut down Russian exports of crude from Novorossiysk. But other Russian ports, such as Primorsk on the uh, Baltic Sea or Nakhodka on the Pacific, are still operating, although at reduced rates because a lot of people want to make sure they never fall afoul of the sanctions. But shipping insurance is not a problem. Well, now it's going to be because the Europeans control 95% of all insurance. And by revoking that possibility, ships can no longer go to the Baltic Sea or the Pacific coast of Russia and load up crude unless they get a sovereign indemnification. That is not going to happen from the Chinese because Chinese state companies have already been avoiding Russian ports because they are too big and their exposure to American sanctions would be too large. They don't want to risk it. It's really just smaller, non-politically connected Chinese refiners that are taking Russian crude right now. So that pretty much seals off all exports from the Pacific, which is the one part of the Russian system that a lot of people thought was going to continue forever. The Baltic Sea, it's even more damning because the Baltic Sea port of Promorsk uh, is so shallow that you can't get a super tanker in there. So you would have to do a sea to sea transfer anyway, and now you can't get insurance for that either. So the insurance aspect of things is likely to reduce Russian oil exports by more in the next couple of months than this phased in European sanctions on Russian oil. But it all ends to the same place. Very, very, very little of Russian crude can find a home now unless a country comes in and does that sovereign indemnification. And it's really difficult to see any country that is, wants to have reasonable relations with the Europeans being able to do that. The Chinese are out. The Turks are a maybe. And that's about it. Uh, India's too far away. So the Europeans have found a way to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, the only question, of course, is how will the Russians now respond? I'm sure they're not going to be happy about this. And their next weapon is natural gas. But that is a topic for another day. People need a getaway from all the politics and division, whether it's with sports, comedy, music or whatever. The majority of us just want a diversion to turn off all the noise. But when large companies start fighting the culture wars and ignoring the mission, which is business, 
people start looking for alternatives. It's that simple. And good leaders understand that. They know it's not worth sinking into the woke muck just to make a handful of people happy. No one's ever happy. And no one ever respects people that cave. Today, the streaming service Netflix took a stand, putting out a memo to its employees, 11,000 of them, saying they aren't going to take tiny little stands over every single piece of content they put out. They're not going to cave to the left who complain about this comedian or this actor. They're just going to go about their business. And if you're not happy with it, well, maybe you should find yourself a new job. Quote, not everyone will like or agree with everything on our service. While every title is different, we approach them based on the same set of principles. We program for a diversity of audiences and tastes, and we let viewers decide what's appropriate for them versus having Netflix censor specific artists or voices. If you'd find it hard to support our content, Netflix may not be the best place for you. What an amazing idea, letting the viewers decide. Thank you. It's about time companies started treating us like adults. This memo was a direct response to some whiny employees who just a few months ago were protesting and crying over the company airing a Dave Chappelle special, all because he made some jokes they didn't like. Cancel people that are more powerful than me. Cancel J.K. Rowling. My God, J.K. Rowling wrote all the Harry Potter books by herself. She sold so many books, the Bible worries about her. And they canceled her because she said in an interview, and this is not exactly what she said, but effectually, she said, gender was a fact. And then the trans community got mad as They started calling her a turf. I didn't even know what the that was. But I know that trans people make up words to win arguments. <laughs> Some of these Netflix employees were offended. It's okay to laugh, but you're sparking hate conversations. The problem is that as trans people, we have very limited rights, all right? We have a whole piece of content on Netflix called Disclosure um, that is, you know, for trans people, by trans people, that explains how comedy and content such as Dave Chappelle's is harmful. You don't have a right in this country to not be offended. If you don't want to work for a company, find a new job. These people were trying to twist the boss's arms into getting their way. And they didn't care if the company ended up having a worse product or less revenue. All they cared about was forcing their lack of sense of humor on the rest of us. But Netflix, they couldn't care less. They're telling their employees, we're not picking sides. You can go out and fight in the culture war if you want, but if it keeps you from doing your job, go work somewhere else. If you don't want to watch Dave Chappelle, watch something else. You don't have to keep me from watching it. It's smart corporate business. We put it out there, and then you can watch whatever. Remember when Major League Baseball wanted to make a political statement last year by moving their all-star game out of Georgia, all because of a fake news story about a voting bill? Well, they ended up moving to Colorado, where voting laws are actually stricter. But that didn't matter. It was just for show. And Atlanta, Georgia, lost out on millions in revenue, and Major League Baseball lost out on the ratings recording their second worst rating number of all time. When politics gets into America's favorite pastime, it's way past time to turn the channel. Hey, look at Disney. 
They stuck their neck out for kindergarten teachers to talk to six-year-olds about sex and transsexuals. Huge mistake. Not only is it inappropriate, but it was a horrific business decision. And now Florida's stripping Disney of all the special treatment they get in Orlando. Netflix isn't making the same mistake. And neither did Spotify. Remember the mob went after Spotify's most popular podcast guy, Joe Rogan? Spotify got a whole lot of heat to fire their biggest revenue driver, but the head of Spotify stood his ground and told his employees he wasn't caving, saying this. While I strongly condemn what Joe Rogan has said, and I agree with his decision to remove past episodes from our platform, I realize some will want more. And I want to make one point very clear. I don't believe that silencing Joe is the answer. Good leaders don't cave. They pause, they reflect, and then they do what's best after careful consideration. But these corporate leaders are stuck with a younger generation that just feels so entitled to getting their way. If one thing goes wrong or if one thing makes the slightest person a bit uncomfortable, they launch a corporate jihad. Joe Rogan actually put it on his podcast this way this week. Watch. A friend of mine who's an employer, she employs people, and she was saying that, like, some of her employees are saying, I need a mental health day today. She's like, you're not sick. Get the f*** to work. Right. What are you talking? You want to get paid right. for this mental health day? Show the f*** up. Right. You, we're not talking about your, your parents just died in a car accident. No, you're just, you have a, a high level of anxiety today. You know, it's this Roe versus Wade thing. I, I saw it in the news and I need a mental health day. Right. F*** you. Show up at work. Show up at work and work harder. You can get a mental health day if someone dies, not if Hillary loses. The Chinese, who are trying to take over the world, don't take mental health days because they use the wrong pronoun. This is a competitive world. Americans can't afford to go soft. Here's Elon Musk on that. I think there will be some very strong companies uh, coming out of China. Um, there's just a lot of super talented, hardworking people in China that are um, strongly believing in, in manufacturing. And, and they will, they'll, they won't just be burning the midnight oil, they'll be burning the 3 a.m. oil. <laughs> so. Um, they, they won't even leave the, leave the factory type of thing, whereas in America, people are trying to avoid going to work at all. We're in an economic war with the Chinese. This lazy corporate culture war is going to make us lose this economic war. So we hope more companies follow in Netflix's footsteps. As Calvin Coolidge once said, the business of America is business. So let's all go to work, stop complaining, and then go home, have a drink, and watch Jesse Waters primetime. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and most compelling analysis. You will not get it anywhere else. Good evening. This right here is what's known as a ballot drop box. And according to the election watchdog group that was featured in the new film called 2000 Mules, well, it looks like different left-wing foundations, as well as many different NGOs, they made, you can say, creative use of these ballot drop boxes during the 2020 election. 
That's because according to True the Vote, which is the election watchdog group that was featured in the film, and they used cell phone geo-trafficking data, they used surveillance footage, as well as interviews with the actual ballot mules themselves, in order to map out what appears to be an illegal ballot harvesting scheme that played itself out across multiple states. And because of their research, the individual states are now beginning to launch their own investigations. Let's go through some of them together. Although, just as a super quick aside, I wanted to mention that I actually got a chance to sit down and speak with both Greg and Catherine from True the Vote, and I had a chance to interview them about all their findings as well as the next steps that they're going to take. It's an absolutely awesome hour-long interview, and if you'd like to check it out for yourself, it's over exclusively on Epic TV. I'll throw a link to it. It'll be right there at the very top of the description box. And now, let's move on over to the state of Arizona, where the Yuma County Sheriff has just announced the opening of a new 2020 voter fraud investigation. Now, specifically, this was the same county that was actually featured in the film, 2000 Mules. And if you watch that film, this was the county where the whistleblower, the one who sat there, but you couldn't see her face, but she was giving her testimony. And she's the one who said, among many other things, that she might have deposited well over 100 ballots herself. And according to an announcement that was made by the Yuma County Sheriff's Office, they now have officially teamed up with the county recorder in order to investigate the possible 2020 election fraud. In fact, as a part of this press release, the sheriff's office revealed that they already have 16 open cases. Here's specifically what they wrote as a part of the statement. Quote, as of March 2022, the Yuma County Sheriff's Office has 16 voting slash registration open cases. All relevant evidence is being formally documented by the Yuma County Recorder's Office and further investigated by the Yuma County Sheriff's Office. Then, in terms of what these cases are all about, while this particular statement does not provide any concrete case details, meaning things like names, dates, and so on, it does give four examples of the types of voter fraud that they found and that they are currently investigating, which includes one, impersonation fraud. This is when someone votes in the name of another legitimate voter or perhaps a voter who has died or moved out of the state. Then the sheriff's office is also investigating cases of false registrations, which is when someone falsifies voter registrations by either using a fake name, a fake birth date, or a fake address. And they mention in the statement that this is being done by what they refer to as outreach groups who are being paid for each registration that they get. Here's, in fact, very specifically what they wrote in the statement. Quote, this is being done by outreach groups who are paid for each registration form they submit. Therefore, are out soliciting voters into unnecessarily re-registering or falsifying forms with Yuma County residents' identities. Then, the sheriff's office is also looking at cases of duplicate voting, which is when someone either submits multiple votes or registers in multiple locations or votes in the same election more than once. And then lastly, the sheriff's office is investigating cases of fraudulent use of absentee ballots, which they describe as being one of two things. Here's specifically how this statement breaks down what exactly is the fraudulent use of absentee ballots. Quote, requesting absentee ballots and voting without the knowledge of the actual voter or obtaining the absentee ballot from a voter and either filling it in directly and forging the voter's signature or illegally telling the voter who to vote for. And by the way, just as an interesting aside, prior to the 2020 election, I was actually over in Maricopa County, Arizona, and I was interviewing people. I was trying to get a sense of which way the political winds were blowing in terms of how people will vote ahead of the election. And I had a super interesting interview with a homeless guy who was over there on the streets of Phoenix. And what he told me really, really surprised me. Here's that part of that interview. You're gonna vote by mail or in person? In person. In person. Do you have any concerns about the mail? Yeah, because uh, somebody might get a hold of it and uh, maybe change it up. Even the, the ballots they do out here to sign up, those might be fraud too. Because you know? I think I signed about two of them. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not for Biden. <laughs> for, for other people. <laughs> I don't know who they were. But one was for... Yeah. 
think a Democrat, no, Republican. But they told me just go ahead and sign it. Uh, that's all I know right there. Because you got to watch out for the ballots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, person's pretty good. And so as you can see, there were clearly some shenanigans afoot. And perhaps with investigations like these playing out across different counties in Arizona, we can actually get to the bottom of what happened. And what's interesting to note is that according to Mr. Dinesh D'Souza, who is of course the producer of 2,000 Mules, the alleged Yuma County ballot mule, the one who was interviewed in the film 2,000 Mules, is in fact cooperating with the authorities for this Yuma County investigation. Here's specifically what Dinesh D'Souza told the reporters over at Just the News in an interview just a few days ago. Quote, it's so great that in that exact venue, meaning Yuma County, the sheriff has now announced a new investigation. It seems to be a direct response to the work both of True the Vote and the movie. So this idea that the movie is making all these outlandish claims, law enforcement doesn't even have to look at it, complete nonsense. And this, I hope, is only the first step. And then furthermore, Ms. Catherine Engelbrecht, who is the founder of True the Vote, she released her own statement shortly after this investigation was announced over in Yuma County, praising the Arizona sheriff. Here's what she said. We are extremely encouraged that the Yuma County Sheriff's Office and Recorder's Office are now working together to investigate individuals involved in the subversion of elections. We've spent concentrated time in Yuma County and have provided significant information to both state and federal authorities. What has been happening in Yuma County is happening across the country. The targeting of vulnerable communities and voter abuse must be stopped. Furthermore, it's worth noting that this Yuma County investigation comes after Arizona's Attorney General, Mr. Mark Brunovich, after he indicted about half a dozen people on illegal ballot harvesting charges not too long ago. And also back in December, the Arizona Attorney General, Mr. Mark Brunovich, he also announced the indictment of two ballot harvesters from Yuma County. They were actually caught because of the fingerprint that they left behind on the ballots, which is worth mentioning is very likely why after they were arrested, you saw other ballot mules across the entire country begin to wear surgical gloves. Regardless, though, we'll have to wait and see whether this new investigation in Yuma County goes anywhere. And if it does, and as soon as new details are released, I will let you know right away. Furthermore, Yuma County has a website where you can actually go and leave anonymous tips if you know anything about ballot harvesting that took place. I'll leave that link down in the description box below this video so you can leave an anonymous tip if you have one. And now, let's switch gears a little bit and move on over to the state of Michigan, where about four days ago, police officers took custody of a voting machine as a part of their investigation into possible voting breaches. Now, specifically, this occurred in Irving Township, where both Michigan State Police, as well as officials with the Michigan's Attorney General's Office, they seized a voting tabulator as a part of their investigation into what they described as unauthorized access to election equipment. Now, we here at the Epic Times, we actually did reach out to the township supervisor, and he got back to us via email saying this, quote, the township intends to fully cooperate with law enforcement, and the township attorneys have been in contact with the Michigan State Police regarding this matter. The township has no further comment at this time. Now, this investigation was actually launched earlier this year at the request of Michigan's Secretary of State, Ms. Jocelyn Benson. She's a Democrat. And according to her official statement, she decided to launch this investigation because of allegedly, quote, an unnamed third party was allowed to access vote tabulator components and technology in Roscommon County. Michigan law is clear about the security threats that emerge when anyone gains unauthorized access to our election machines or technology, and I will have no tolerance for those who seek to illegally tamper with our voting equipment. However, since making that statement, Lieutenant Derek Carroll of the Michigan State Police, well, he indicated that this probe, whatever it actually is, has gone way beyond Roscommon County. Here's specifically what he said in a statement to Reuters, quote, as we found out more information, we've expanded our area to see if any other places were compromised. 
we have gone to other regions. Now, at this very moment, it's completely unclear who actually this breacher was, how they got access to the voting machines, and generally it's unclear about what's going on with this investigation in general, since the office has been refusing to disclose any details. The only thing that we do know is that the state police made a point to mention that, quote, the probe will continue until we have exhausted all leads. The possible unauthorized access did not in any way affect the 2020 election. That is very reassuring. Regardless though, if you'd like to read more about the seizure of election equipment over in Michigan, I'll throw that link down into the description box below. And now, regarding the movie 2000 Mules, as I, sir, what's this? It's me. Of course it's secure because we use the Secure app, which is the sponsor of today's episode, as well as an awesome email and message service provider that actually cares about your privacy. Now listen, it's no big secret that our data is being mined and remined all the time. In fact, there was a recent study that was published in the year 2020, which found that 155 million Americans, likely including you and me, have suffered some form of data breach. And frankly, that's only what's publicly known. However, all those past problems with privacy issues and data mining, well, that can be an issue of the past because moving forward, you can use the Secure app, which both your messages, your emails, and your phone calls can remain private. That's because they have their servers and their data centers located in Switzerland instead of in the US or China or Russia. And why does that matter? Because Switzerland has the strictest data privacy laws in the entire world and they are not subject to the intrusive Cloud app. Now, what I love the most about the Secure app is that they don't collect my data, they don't mine my data, they don't mine the data and phone numbers of my friends and family. Everything is private. And best of all, at least in my opinion, this does not work with your big tech email provider just because it is not secure. And so, and so check it out. You can head on over to secure.com and if you use promo code Roman, you can get 25% off. And frankly, their rates are not even that expensive. It only starts with $5 for the messenger and $10 for the email and messenger combo. And best of all, they offer a seven day free trial. And now regarding the movie 2000 Mules, as I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, we just published an exclusive interview between myself and Catherine Engelbrecht and Greg Phillips, the team behind the research and that interview was absolutely awesome. Here's a trailer for it. You got dirty rolls, you got mail ballots, and then in the 11th hour, suddenly we have these privately funded drop boxes. There's sort of a central point where those ballots were being delivered, and then someone or the mules were taking them to the polls and putting them in these drop boxes. There are both international and, and sort of national type foundations that have found ways to get money in a variety of fashions into these communities. Big money, like billions. If this is true, why aren't there already investigations happening? What about just a, a, a fair process is so troubling that you go out of your way to cover this up? I'd love to say that there's no politics at the highest levels of the FBI or some of the other agencies that are involved, um, but it's just not true. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, if you'd like to watch that interview in its glorious entirety, you can do so over on Epic TV, which is our awesome no censorship video platform. If you'd like to check it out, I'll throw the link. It'll be right there at the very top of the description box for you to check out. And I really hope that you do because both their movie as well as their initial research, well, it's just the beginning. In fact, during that interview, we discussed the next steps that they're taking as well as the next steps that you and I, the American citizens, can take in order to help secure America's elections. If you want to check out that interview and see what they have to say, well, that link will be right there at the very top of the description box. And then until next time, I'm your host, Roman from the Epic Times. Stay informed and stay free.